Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risks. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Just a note, these conversations were recorded live at Web Summit, so our audio isn't as clear as usual. We'll be back to our usual standards soon, and thanks for sticking with us. We hope you enjoy the discussions anyway. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This is the second part of our two-part episode that we recorded at Web Summit, a conference that brought together 30,000 people and startups of all sizes to Lisbon, Portugal. While we were there, we sat down to talk with a few people for the podcast whose companies and work are trying to make the future better. They're game changers in their respective fields, and all of them are aiming to impact society positively. Today, we're playing our conversation with Sonia George, the Executive Director for Alliance for Affordable Internet and the Head of Digital Inclusion Program at the Web Foundation. As an expert in the confluence of development and communications policy, Sonia talked with us about how the organization brings affordable internet to countries worldwide and what works and what doesn't work during that process. Um, So we're here with Sonia talking about digital divides and internet access at the Web Summit. So Sonia, you've been addressing these issues for quite some time and they have remained quite some issues. So other than every government in the world deciding to invest, you know, several trillion dollars to hyperconnect everyone and lay fiber optics and invest in 5G and give everyone devices, what can we do about making sure that what's increasingly a utility like water and clothing and heat and electricity, how can we make sure that everybody has access to the the wonderful and sometimes not so wonderful world of the web? Right. Uh, it's actually not very difficult to, to do a couple of things. Uh, it's about political will, right? But uh, two things that I like to highlight that are really easy to do and make a huge difference. One is if countries had very clear national broadband plans with clear targets, clear projects and programs to address these issues, it would be very easy to actually address and solve the problem. We know what to do. We know exactly how it can be done. And it's about just having the will to put it in practice. So that's one. The other thing is to support that, again, because we work on policy, especially in low and middle income countries, one of the things that we focus on in our work is helping governments have also clarity from a policy perspective. Is the digital development space in their country one that is conducive to not just the investment in the infrastructure, as you were, as you were saying, but also in supporting all the other complements that make a digital society possible like are people digital citizens do they understand how to use technology 
technology? Are they, do they have the skills? Do they have the knowledge? Do they uh, benefit from the content that is online? Do they know what it means to be an active digital citizen, recognizing their rights, but also their duties when they engage with technology? And I think those two actions from a policy side to support that, this idea of digital citizenship as well as very um, strong clarity around broadband planning. And when I say broadband, is to make sure that people have access to um, access that is also of high quality. That would do a lot. So does the impending rollout globally of 5G technology, one of the things that happened, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa is that because there wasn't as much embedded uh, energy infrastructure, it's a little easier to have micro solar projects and solar because you, you're not competing with an embedded industry. Um, does 5G offer a better prospect at a less cost than having to lay lots of cable? Or? The telecom sector is similar to the other sectors, in, also in sub-Saharan Africa. So you have dominant players, you have, you know, in some markets, really, you know, excellent, healthy competition. In others, you don't. And so it's similar. Now, should internet access also be, as you were asking earlier, um, some people like to say human right, a public utility? I would argue for it, absolutely, it would solve a lot of problems because you would have a mandate to do things in a different way. But can competition and can policy also help us get in, the, you know, kind of go in that trajectory? I think it can as well. The thing is that for that to happen, we need to make sure that we have strong regulation, right? Really strong policy to allow competition to be healthy and really result in good pricing and good options for people. If it doesn't, we need to do something different. And we haven't done enough of that. And I think many countries feel very, um, maybe um, not confident to actually take the kinds of actions that are required to turn around what competition can do for the markets and recognize what cannot be done and compensate that with really strong partnerships, really strong um, public and universal access type of programming that in some countries has proven to be really successful. And so embracing that, um, you know, the ability of understanding that there's not just one way of doing it. Sometimes part of the equation is understanding all the pieces to it, right? It's like a puzzle. You can work really well with one piece of the puzzle or another, but if you don't do, uh, if you don't work on another piece, the whole puzzle together is going to fall apart. And so you have to work on all of these pieces together. And I guess one, one flip side is do you worry sometimes about uh, the ways in which many governments have used increased broadband access for increased control? I mean, the, the, hope, was that, the hope was that like all this would be a liberating, connecting, economically beneficial, which it is and it can be, but there's also the, 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 the downside to it. The threats, the, the abuses, absolutely. It's th This is why I like to use the concept of digital citizenship, because I think it's really important that everyone understands that by coming online, and those of us that also work on enabling connectivity, we also are just as responsible to make sure that that connectivity is safe, is private, that our personal data is protected. And so I think that the concept of digital citizenship really encapsulates that. It's about not just what we as users and consumers have the right to 
um, to that opportunity, but also our duty to behave in a way that, and to learn to behave in a way that allows us to be who we want to be in a digital space. And I think that's really important. That's especially important for women, as you know. Not only they remain mostly excluded, but when they're not excluded and come online, they are abused at a much higher rate and it's a very ugly environment and if you don't have that very strong sense of both right and duty and understanding you cannot benefit from you cannot rip the opportunities that you can actually um, you know rip from these kind of digital environments so it is important we don't want an unsafe internet we don't want an internet that is not private but how many people spend the time learning to use I mean there's a bunch of hackers here that I'm sure are probably trying to check all of our phones and it's so easy to do and people are still not using VPNs and this is the web summit I was wondering if you could tell us a success story you mentioned that there are some countries who have gone in and have increased access and uh, hopefully avoided these uh, pitfalls that we're talking about now but you know is there, are there a few examples you can give us um, which ones and how it happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say the countries that we actually have been supporting since AFRAI uh, started as an initiative in uh, Ghana, Nigeria, and Mozambique in Africa. Um, and in Latin America, the Dominican Republic is one that I'm so proud of, especially now. These are countries that were not in very good shape when it came to uh, connectivity, and especially affordable uh, and high quality, what we call meaningful uh, connectivity. And through a lot of really good work, focusing on good policy and really focusing on solutions to make it happen, have made incredible strides. There's a lot more to be done, no doubt. And there's many more new things that we have to be more aware, but they've made incredible strides. And not only that, they've proven that when they plan well, and then when they plan with everyone at the table, things actually can happen. because. It's not just about government's interest or just private's interest separate. It's about all of our vested interests together as a collective. And so in those countries, um, not only there's been a lot of progress, but really good progress. So in Ghana, not just about, you know, say infrastructure or broadband in general in the aggregate for the country, but it's targeted projects for rural areas, targeted projects for women and girls, and all of these kinds of things that together really create a good positive solution. So and how much of it is like best practices as far as you've done this before in certain countries and you've seen what works and so you can go in and say, look, this, mm -hmm. this is the experience that we've had. And how much of it is every country is completely different and mm -hmm. it needs a targeted approach or it needs something new. Well, that's a good question, Emma. That's very smart and I'll tell you. We always base so much of our advice on good practices, but good practices are only as good as the evidence that they can share, right? Often a good practice is good in a particular environment like you were alluding to, and it doesn't work in another environment. Part of what's important and what we have to be responsible for is understanding it's not so much it was a good practice. What were the conditions that made it possible to be a good practice? And if you know those conditions, then you can tweak and work to think so that you can make that happen. And you can also accept the fact that a particular good practice in one area does not work elsewhere. And you need to basically uh, reimagine, rethink a particular process in a new place. And that's okay. We don't have to all be the same. In fact, that's what makes us more interesting. <laughs> Well, thank you, Sonia, and thank you for the conversation, and thank you for the work. Of course, thank you.
Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. How do you feel about the healing potential of psychedelics? Our next conversation with Robert Barrow, the CEO of MindMed, a company that researches and develops psychedelic-inspired medicine that they hope will be able to treat mental illness and addiction. So we caught up with Rob Barrow, CEO of MindMed. Uh, at the Web Summit and having a conversation about what for many people is a secret passion but is increasingly a public debate about what do we do about a variety of substances that society has deemed illegal from psilocybin to LSD to MDMA to in certain parts of the world still cannabis that also could have profoundly constructive therapeutic effects and the ability to do a lot of good in the world, even though the cultural and social and legal framework says that they only do harm. So how, did, how does one square that circle? You know, you come along and you say, hey, wait a minute, no. But what about that whole narrative of these are bad things that do bad things to good people? I, yeah, I think that's really a social story that's been told for political, politically motivated reasons for, for many, many years, and um, that certainly has changed in recent years. Ultimately, what we need to do is have definitive research to prove the, the benefits of these drugs. And if we can show that, if we can show that it benefits patients, I think the, the world will change its mind about the applications. No one, no one really looks at, at uh, psychostimulants and says, oh, these are just bad drugs, right? Our kids are getting Adderall and Ritalin regularly, and these obviously have, have psychoactive effects, and they have relations to other controlled substances. The same is true here, and I'm not saying it's the same story as, as the ADHD treatments, 
I think it's really important to just recognize that until we have definitive clinical data to say that these drugs are safe and effective, it's open to a political narrative. Right. When we prove it, the, the book's closed. It will be proven once and for all, and we'll have a really well-defined path forward. I mean, it's definitely true. Like, I have this debate constantly with my teenage sons. Not really a debate, because I happen to agree with this, but a discussion of the arbitrary lines that we've socially drawn between extremely powerful drugs like Ritalin, um, like Prozac. I mean, these are mood-altering, targeted substances that were designed for purposes, but are, but are unequivocally have a significant effect on one's psyche, on one's physicality, you name it. And we've decided, okay, those are... Those are acceptable and legal. And then we have a whole series of other drugs, also powerful, also potentially destructive or constructive, that we've just decided are off the table and off the spectrum. So how do you nav- I mean, how do you navigate the legal challenges of you know, a lot of what you um, are looking into and researching, you know, most of these substances are are illegal to buy and illegal to use. Yeah, I, I think it has everything to do in the psychedelic world, a commonly uh, discussed terminology is set and setting. And really, if you if you zoom out and take the more standard medical approach, the real question is um, how are patients observed and how is safety managed for treatment? So it's a very different thing to, to say have someone just go take LSD at a concert or on the street. Very different safety and efficacy profile compared to coming into a controlled clinical setting with experienced medical professionals. Those are two very different applications. And so as we think about how these can be most effectively used, we see it as a pharmaceutical product, one that can be rolled out into our mental health infrastructure that exists currently and that that individuals can access. I I think about my family from, from rural North Carolina. None of them are going out and doing... LSD or psilocybin to, to benefit themselves. That you know of. That we know of, well said. But you know, if one day these become approved therapies and, and one of them has uh, depression or anxiety and we see that there is a huge therapeutic benefit with a relative low risk, um, I envision a world one day where those individuals in particular are going out and, and being prescribed these therapies and having a sort of life-altering experience in, in a treatment session that puts them on a new trajectory and that changes the course of, of the psychiatric disease. So do you think um, the story of what's kind of happened with cannabis over the past 10 to 20 years, where multiple countries from Canada to, uh, I mean, I guess now nearly 20 states in the United States and a few countries in Europe from the Netherlands to Switzerland, I don't know the recent, I think France as well now, um, is, is, it, is it a similar pathway toward greater social acceptance for cannabis that then leads to more, huh, maybe we should reconsider what these substances are, what they do? Because you had this long period, right, where medical marijuana was acceptable but not, not recreational use. Um, or is it very different, you think? I think it's very different. I think it's, it's night and day compared to cannabis. We're, we're developing, and, and other companies in the psychedelic space are developing these as pharmaceutical products that are going through FDA and EMA approval processes. That takes longer. It's an expensive, labor-intensive effort to get these across the finish line. But once they are, they will be prescription drugs that you will get prescribed by a physician in the U.S. 
you, you go to your doctor and they'll say, you know, you have, you have anxiety, let's say, and, um, this is a treatment option you could consider. I think that is a total, you know, total sea change from uh, a state by state, you know, uh, an extra legal policy driven legalization process. We have no direct interest in altering the course of the legality of psychedelics. We want to see these approved as drugs. And ultimately, I think that's going to lead to broader adoption or, or more social acceptance and more permanent acceptance. And to me, this is the thing. If you if you leave open to the political lens the acceptability of a drug or not, it, the tide can turn, right? I mean, it, it can be that we decide this decade that psilocybin should be legal, and then in 20 years, oh, actually, it's a bad thing. We don't want it anymore. Um, I don't want to risk that. I want to see these drugs be approved, be prescribed, get on the market, and ultimately get out to the patients that need them. I mean, that, that's the ultimate mission here. Given that this feature rests, you said at the beginning, on the proof, you know, does this really work or not? Where are we on the proof? What does the research tell you? There's an enormous body of academic data that dates back to the 1950s and 60s on LSD uh, and to some extent on psilocybin. There's been a lot of recent research into those two molecules in particular. Our friends at MAPS had a phase, positive phase three study of MDMA and treating post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, colleagues at Compass Pathways are going to have a phase two readout of psilocybin and treatment-resistant depression later this year. And there's a number of, of other studies that are happening at leading research universities around the world that will be coming out in the next six to 12 months, including some that we have a, a direct involvement with on LSD and anxiety disorders. The evidence is substantial historically certainly on the ethics side on the safety side of the equation there's just an enormous body of data from well-controlled research and dating back decades showing that these substances when administered in controlled settings are enormously safe we have to prove it to fda they don't meet the fda or ema standards as of yet but i think we can take an enormous degree of comfort in the opportunity we have based on that historical data. So hasn't been definitively proven yet. I, I think about it as a drug developer. It's very rare that you come into a development program though and you have safety in thousand patients, efficacy signals in hundreds of thousands of patients. Most of the time you're developing new drugs and you don't know if it it's never been in humans before and you don't know if it's going to have some severe toxicity after a single dose. We have a lot of optimism uh, with the psychedelics, I think it's a, a very, very clear path forward to getting them onto the market. It's just a matter of making the right investments, choosing the right indications, and putting our heads down and ultimately doing it. So, final question on this Is this like the positive Brave New World story where we have a, a much greater capacity with uh, much more subtlety, right? Because a lot of the drugs that are legal, like Ritalin and, and, and some of the others are pretty blunt instruments, or at least the way they're administered, they can be more like a sledgehammer um, to a to a nail. Uh, are, do these create the possibility of more sort of tailored, limited dosage for a whole slew of things that right now are not so receptive to the drugs that we have? Yeah, I, I think there's everything is on the table. And what we've seen today is that the applications span far broader than just the, the top indications of psychiatric depression and anxiety. 
applications in pain, there's applications in cluster headache we've seen. Uh, there's, there's applications, for instance, phantom limb pain, things that are just intractable. And we're just in the early innings of understanding exactly where this could ultimately go. I think inherently as well, at least for the psychiatric indications, the, the leading thought about the mechanism of action is that it's at least some, in some part, psychological, right? That there's some therapeutic element of it. That's what inherently has a tailored approach, right? What you need out of a treatment session is going to be different than what I need or what someone else needs. So inherently, if you're going in with an individual therapist, if you're going in with your own set of intentions and, and needs based on your condition, it's going to be a more direct process than just a pure pharmacotherapy where it's take one of these forever and I hope you get better. Cool. Well, thanks, Rob. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks so much to Robert Barrow. And maybe we'll all be tripping together soon on an episode of What Could Go Right. And thank you, What Could Go Right listeners, for coming along to Web Summit with us. We hope you enjoyed. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Barbalucas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.